You are listening to The Partner Podcast, relevant information to enhance the careers and improve the lives of partner-level attorneys. Produced by the Attorney Search Group, we grow law firms and accelerate attorney careers. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. Hi, this is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Partner Podcast. Everybody wants to have a crystal ball so they can see what the future is going to be like, so they can anticipate that and even get an edge over their competitors. Law firm management seems to be a dynamic situation that's going through a constant series of changes. A recent book that discusses this is called The Lawyer Bubble. I asked the author, Stephen Harper, to join me on today's episode of the Partner Podcast, and I think you'll find some deep insights into him elaborating on the key concepts that he writes about in this book. Specifically, is there really an oversupply of attorneys? What are the changes that law firm leaders need to anticipate? I think that by listening to this program and doing your own research and digging deeper into that concept of oversupply of lawyers, you'll be able to get an edge over your competitors and be ready for the changes that are just over the horizon. So let's listen to Stephen Harper as he talks about the lawyer bubble. So I've got with me on the Partner Podcast author Stephen Harper. He's an adjunct professor at Northwestern University. He's a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. And for 30 years prior to his retirement in 2008, and by the way, Steve, you've got a pretty busy retirement, uh, he was a litigator in a large international law firm, Kirkland & Ellis, which he joined upon graduation from Harvard Law School. Uh, he's a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and has been included in Chambers, America's Leading Lawyers for Business and the Best Lawyers in America. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining me on the Partner Podcast today. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so this is your first book, or excuse me, your fourth book. You've written several others. Uh, what is it that led up to you deciding to write this particular book? Well, this grew out of an undergraduate course, actually. I've been teaching trial advocacy at the law school uh, as part of a program there uh, for the last 20 years. But about seven years ago, I started teaching an undergraduate course because I was concerned that one of the things that was happening in the profession was that we were becoming, as a group, uh, more and more unhappy. Um, lawyers lead uh, all, all other occupations in, in some very unfortunate categories. Um, including uh, alcoholism, substance abuse, and just sort of general career dissatisfaction. So what I did was I started this course, and this was actually before the Great Recession began, as an effort to try to bridge the, what I thought was a gap between the expectations that young prospective lawyers have heading into law school and the reality that they experience not only in law school but more importantly beyond in terms of what being a lawyer actually means. And I couldn't find anything. I assembled lots of material, but I couldn't find anything that just in a single and what I would call balanced way Took a took a look at what the profession, the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what the profession is. So it really began as something I could use uh, as a teaching tool for my undergraduate students, and then it it sort of became what what it what it now is, which is, I guess, uh, uh, something that's of of interest to a far greater audience. When I first started reading the book, not knowing what to expect, thinking it was going to be, you know, not even knowing what it was about, you know, reading some of the reviews, which were all positive. I I got the impression that the author was lamenting the way things have become and really pining for a happier day in the past. And I thought, well, maybe that's what it is. But then you started showing empirical data, and you showed numbers and metrics which really substantiated some of your claims in the book of how things have changed 
and giving ideas on how law firms can ameliorate the situation of the lawyer bubble. Uh, so how did you go about conducting all the extensive research? I mean, you, you go and de dig deep into law school rankings and how those are calculated to in-depth analysis of law firm implosions. Uh, how did you go about conducting all the research for the book? I guess I would say it's two things. One, it was an accumulation of materials that I gathered in connection with my undergraduate class. I had to really uh, give them something to read that wasn't just me talking. Um, and I taught the entire course as a, as a Socratic discussion seminar. Um, so, I, you know, some of it was just, just ferreting out that kind of data. And the other is just, I think, I guess you would just say I, I was paying attention. Um, you know, having spent 30 years at Kirkland and Ellis and sort of keeping track of things as they were happening and what was going on, you know, some of these big law firm implosions, you know, you, you couldn't miss. And you couldn't miss the reverberations throughout the profession. And so I started thinking in terms of, well, what was it about some of these things that, that the firms that were failing and that did fail uh, had in common? And, and what were the trends? What were the trends generally in the profession? And how did that feed into uh, the larger story of what's going on generally in the profession? And, and as you know, if I had to sum it up, I would say it's a, that what we become, unfortunately, is a is a profession that is transformed into a business. People talk about that all the time, the law is a business and so on and so forth. Uh, but what, they, what, what gets sterilized away from that is some of the ways in which lawyers import uh, business school type metrics and jargon and then distort them. Um, and, then, and you wind up with this kind of culture of short-term thinking that really causes an erosion in long-term values that become far more important one value of which is the stability of the very law firms themselves, um, and th and that was th that was sort of one of the themes that that I thought ran through the the entire profession. You see it at the law school level, which is part one of the book. You see it in U.S. news rankings, and in part two of the book, which is big law firms, you see it in the in the continued uh, myopia over American lawyer rankings, right. uh, which didn't, didn't even exist until 1985. You know, I, I used to tell students, and I still tell students, you know, back when I applied to law school, there weren't U.S. news rankings. How in the world did lawyers ever figure out where to go to law school, you know, without rankings? Because now they're just, they're, they're everybody's Bible. And, and similarly, now you see with American lawyer, uh, very often you'll see uh, partners, a uh, number of partners after the Dewey implosion were complaining because one of the things that they had relied upon were the American lawyer data on how well Dewey and LaBeouf had been doing. Um, and so you see this sort of myopia that's set in, and, it's, and it creates a kind of culture of short-term thinking that really does uh, have long-term implications. You know, let's kind of go down that path for a little bit. You talked about the metrics and how they distort them. You know, give me sure. some examples. What have you seen uh, specifically how, how those metrics are distorted? Well, I'll give you, I think the, I think the best example is the billable hour. You know, the billable hour started out in the 70s, in the early 70s, as a transparency mechanism. It used to be that it, clients of big firms would get a, an invoice at the end of the month that just said four services rendered a million dollars. No breakdown, no nothing. And so for a variety of reasons, uh, I won't go into all of them now. You can, people can read about them in the book if they want to. Uh, we wound up in this world where the, the billable hour was a way to provide greater client transparency. It was sort of say, oh, you want to see what our people are doing? Here's what they're doing. Well, from that, it is now morphed into, uh, in, into the complete upside-down concept of productivity. Well, billable hour is the opposite of productivity. If you, if you were to, uh, to ask somebody to paint your house, and he came up to you and he said, well, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know exactly how long it's going to take me, but I do know this. The longer it takes me, the more it's going to cost you. 
no one would say that that was an appropriate productivity measure in terms of that particular painter. And I don't think anybody would hire him. Right. But we now, we now in the in the in the in the jargon of, of law firm management consultants, and you see it you, you see it everywhere. Uh, billable hour is equated with productivity. It might be utilization. You know, it may it may be that billable hour can be used to measure lots of different things. But rather than as a transparency mechanism for clients, it's become a a short term governing to tool internally for law firms. And if your billable hours aren't up, then you're not quote unquote productive um, in the law firm model sense. And I think that's a complete perversion of the whole notion of, of productivity. Right. Well, this, this is a very interesting uh, subject that you have really kind of taken on. And I've seen it within my world, uh, you know, kind of, you know, I, I don't know if I, you want to call me part of the problem as a, as a headhunter. Uh, I recruit partners that have loyal clients to firms that are willing to pay for that, but they do so, most of them, very conservatively. You know, it has to be a good long-term fit for everybody. You know, so you, you've kind of taken on this issue, and you've said this is a discussion that we as a profession or even an industry need to have. Uh, what I find interesting is that, you know, you've said that it is becoming more of a business uh, and with my own background, always been in business, never practiced law, I don't see that as being a bad thing. I mean, do you think that's that's good or do you think that's bad? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I, I sort of anal, anal, analogize it this way. If you were to ask most people uh, who are now lawyers, who are, let's say, in their 40s or 50s or 60s, why they went to law school, very few of them would say that they went to law school to make money. Hardly any of them would say we went to they, they went to law school because they expected to get rich, um, and and in in fact, to be cynical about it, people would also say uh, probably that is lawyers would also say, would have said at the time anyway, the guys that were in you know sort of focused on that kind of stuff had either a love for business and there's nothing wrong with having a right. love for business mm -hmm. I, and and I and I don't I also have to clarify headhunters aren't aren't necessarily part of the problem oh, you know <laughs> the, yeah well they they, they, they you're, you guys have to make a living i understand right. that and as i often say some of my best friends are lateral partners you know <laughs> there are times when there's a strategic purpose for a lateral hire absolutely and yeah. i know lots of them i could cite lots of examples where they work out great for the partner and they work out great for the firm the problem comes in when you decide or when a firm decides that as a as a strategic global objective, they're just going to grow. And they're just going to go out and buy books of business wherever they can buy books of business so that growth becomes an end, a goal in and of itself. That's and right. I think that's generally a mistake for the firms that do it. It certainly was a mistake for Dewey and LaBeouf, and it's been a mistake for a lot of other firms that I profile in the book. I, I would agree with that. And even within any organization, you know, just because a firm is growing doesn't mean it's necessarily a good unless there is a strategic aim uh, that makes sense on multiple levels. And right. re related to lateral hiring and recruiting, uh, the way I look at this and the way I, I really, and in some ways really educate my clients is that this is client development. What you're doing is bringing clients to your firm through a practitioner that already has good trusting relationships with those clients. And so it has to have you know, a multiple pronged approach and perspective to that uh, with a good long-term fit where everybody benefits not just in the short term. It can't just be because we have to hit these metrics because of the pressure we're feeling prior to getting our rankings out with the American lawyer or who, whichever publication. But you know, what's yep. going to be the long-term value that is going to serve our partners, our firm, our staff, and our clients? You know, how can we 
uh, really grow, uh, grow, you know, raise the tide so that everybody benefits. Yeah, and I would add one other uh, con uh, constituency to the group you listed, and they may have been included implicitly, um, but that is, those would be the associates in the firm. You know, one of the things that's happened is a is a is a remarkable phenomenon, but not at all surprising, is that it's become far easier to become a partner in a firm these days if you're lateraling in, than if you're trying to be homegrown talent, um, and that has implications. It has implications for morale. It has implications for client development. There was a recent Altman Wild survey. Flash survey that came, that came out that reflected some of the cognitive dissonance I think that big law firm partners have about this. They're determined to try to grow, and yet they yet a, a, a sizable percentage, as many as as thirty or forty percent of them, say that they have real concerns about whether or not the next generation down, that is the, the current senior associates and younger partners, will be in a position to take over existing client relationships. Do they, they're, they're losing a sense of continuity, I think, uh, in the firm. And that's, that's their own making, because if you're going to build silos and encourage people to build client silos that they transport with them from place to place, that doesn't create much incentive institutionally for a firm to say, well, let's make sure we mentor these young people into roles so that they can become uh, institutional institution of institutional value not only to the firm but but to its clients uh, rather than worrying about partners who are trying to make sure they can justify their compensation this year uh, by hanging on to every every bill of billing hour that they uh, that they can claim right right well let, let me ask you this in terms of what you've written and the discussions that you've really started within the profession what has been the feedback what have most people been saying about what you've written yeah, it's been really interesting. I'll, I'll put aside the law school part because that's of less interest, I think, to your listeners. Um, the the in terms of the reaction of law firms, it's been quite remarkable. I have to. I always have to qualify this by saying I wouldn't expect to hear from a lot of people who 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 hated me for this, uh, or who disagreed with me. But I'll tell you, I've had a surprising reaction in this sense. Many managing partners of big firms have invited me to appear. Um, and present my thoughts to their partnership meetings, which suggests to, to suggest to me a kind of um, maybe I'm misreading it, but it does suggest to me a kind of open-mindedness coupled with a concern that maybe I have hit some note that resonates maybe with them because most of the people who run big firms now are my age, uh, maybe a little younger, uh, in their fifties. And I think they realize that without the kind of mentoring and training and the kind of institutional culture through which many of them advanced, they wouldn't be where they are today. I think some of them are some of them are naive enough to believe their own press releases, but I think others, more realistically, will say, "Hey, you know, there was a culture that I came through that doesn't exist anymore." And oh, by the way, I'm not all that happy either. So you know, the, the, the as a, in that same uh, survey that I mentioned earlier. Uh, managing partners reported earlier this year that 40 percent of the managing partners who responded to the survey, and it was a very good response to the survey, said that partner morale, now this is partner morale, was lower than it was in 2008 wow. uh, prior to the financial crisis. So I think people are looking at this and, and they're looking at it perhaps with more concern than I would have thought given the way some of the behaviors have, have been happening. So I've been very encouraged in that sense by the response. You know, an interesting thing that you kind of touch on, which kind of is a concept I really believe in, uh, and when I look at a, a firm that I can sell to someone, and most of the people I recruit are not even looking. I mean, they're, they're just not thinking about making a move, and, and I'll find out what are those 
you know, what I call the pushes and the pulls. What's going to push them out of their firm? What's going to pull them to something else? You know, what's that motivation? And I think there's a hunger for leadership uh, among most partners today. Is that something that you'd agree with, Steve? Yeah, I think what happens, you know, it's, you know, I think sometimes a couple of things happen. One, there's been a, a, a tremendous, uh, in most big firms, and there are some exceptions, I always have to qualify what I say, too, by acknowledging that this isn't true for every big firm. There are some important and significant differences among big firms culturally and in terms of their incentive structures. There's still some lockstep firms around that have found that system produces a great deal of stability for their firms and their clients. Um, but uh, the, the problem that I think has happened is that because in, in most firms, the internal compensation gap within equity partnerships has grown to be so large that you have the haves and the have-nots even within equity partnerships. Now, don't get me wrong. There isn't anybody in the, in the United States who feels sorry for the, the lowliest equity partner in any big firm in America. They're doing great. They're doing better than, than anybody would ever have expected that they would do when they were in law school. Right. But the, the difference within law firms, and back when I was... Uh, was starting out, you know, typically you'd see a spread top to bottom within equity partnerships of maybe three to one or four to one. Well, now at many firms that that spread has grown to over 10 to one. At Dewey, it was reported to be 20 to one at the time of collapsed. And what that creates is a culture where you have, I think, in, in, in many respects, people at the top who live in an echo chamber um, and are doing really well. And their embedded self-interest is undeniable. They're, they're doing fabulously, even compared to their own fellow equity partners. And then you have the other sort of at the bottom end with not much of a middle class in between. And at the bottom end, you have people are saying, well, I don't want to rock this boat because I'm, you know, I'm able to make my mortgage payment and, and buy a new car every year and do the things that people can do with you know, significant six-figure incomes, in some cases seven-figure incomes, even at the bottom of these equity partnerships. So I think there's a, there's a kind of an inertia that sets in and it stays there because the embedded interests at the top have absolutely no incentive to change it. Um, and in fact, there's a book that Richard Susskind uh, came out a month with a, uh, about a month before mine called Tomorrow's Lawyers. And he makes the observation, having spoken with many senior partners throughout the world, that one concern he has is there's this focus on short-term thinking where that the senior leadership in many of these firms um, is, is, is uh, able to look no further than whenever their retirement uh, is. Right. Well, what, what, what do you think law firm leaders can do to insulate themselves from becoming another Dewey? You know, if, if there's a managing partner of a firm or a chairman that is looking at their firm strategy, what, what do you think are some of the action steps they should take really not to become another statistic, a statistic of a failing law firm? Well, I guess I would I put it slightly differently. I don't think most law firms are going to fail. Um, I, I don't think that's the way it's going to work. I think if the question is, you know, what was what was different about Dewey, a lot of people will tell you lots of things. They had very big guaranteed pay packages. They were um, and, and long-term guaranteed pay packages. They probably were spread far too thinly throughout the world and far too quickly. Um, and, and there are a number of different things that were unique uh, about Dewey and LaBeouf. But what I would be concerned about if I were a managing partner today in a big firm is whether or not what I'm doing now is compromising the long-term value of my institution by not preserving things that were important, uh, important even when I came up through the ranks. So that if, you're, if you've got incentive systems or structures that don't encourage mentoring, 
that don't encourage um, partners to spend a lot of time introducing talented young people to their to their clients so that someday those I mean when I when I used to be my goal when I was a, a partner would be to be able to go on vacation and have my clients call somebody else with the problem that was my whole goal so um, and I didn't worry about whether or not that was going to cause me to lose compensation at the end of the year my concern was having a, a continuity of relationships at a very high level of client service so that clients were able, and this happened all the time, they would call, they would call me, uh, and then after I came back from vacation and said, "Say, you know that, uh, you know John Smith, that fellow you you sent me to, or or Mary Mary Jones, uh, they were terrific. You know, how about I let, how about they work on all my stuff from now on? You know, and 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 even to the point, I would even say of moving away from me uh, to to younger partners. I would that that's, but you know, I just don't think that's possible in the current climate. I think that most big firm uh, big firm managing partners are very fearful um, because of the what has taken them to this point also now I, I think creates fear of what's next because what's taken them to this point is creating a culture in which you hire people because they'll come to you because you pay them the most and um, when the money starts to erode then all of a sudden the glue that holds everything together doesn't look to be so strong. You're absolutely right, Steve. And this was from my experience as a leadership trainer years ago when I was a naval officer. I really studied organizations. And, and I was 24 at a young age as an internal organizational development consultant. And I would go around to all the different Navy commands consulting to them on performance improvement. And I found that within these government workers, the civilian commands filled with government workers, I found that the harder they worked, the more their compensation stayed the same, yet they were committed and they were devoted to the work that they did. And I think it was because of those leaders that could articulate the value of what they did connected with some sort of greater mission. And I think that's missing in a lot of law firms. You know, I think that the mission for some firms is, you know, compensation, and there has to be something greater than that. So. One of my signature quotes, you know, really in learning about how law firms are structured and how fragile they are, is that a law firm is nothing more than a collective of peers held together by conditional promises, and that's it. And if there is a hiccup in the market, there has to be what you just mentioned, the glue, something that's going to keep them there. And there are some law firms where the primary reason that someone should join them is for compensation. I had a group that I placed that was looking at this one firm, and I knew that firm, and I said, listen, if all you care about is making money over the next two years, that's probably the best firm for you, and you shouldn't even consider my client. Uh, and we talked about what was important to them in terms of career, and you know that other firm wasn't a good fit as it turns out. You know, it was nothing more than a collection of solo practitioners, and uh, you know, so I see that different firms try to hold their team together through some sort of glue. Uh, compensation is one glue. What what would you say are other ways that law firms can really try to build a cohesive team within their organization, Steve? Uh, well, you have to start earlier. You have to. You really have to start early. Um, that is, you've got to you've got to um, really focus on what it is that's going to keep the best and the brightest. I mean, you're exactly right. That somebody made the the very wise comment that the thing about law firms is that the most important assets get in the elevator every day and go home. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what is it that what is it that's going to bind those people together? And you know, some of it, some of the challenge is size. I think it's inherently more difficult as firms get larger 
to retain that sense of collegiality and community. Extre I think it's extremely tough to do it. I think there, there may be a couple firms that have been able to pull it off, but I think that's pretty tough. I think when I started at Kirkland, I was about the 150th lawyer. Uh, today, the, I think there are 1,800 lawyers in that firm, or 1,500, an enormous number. And it's very hard you know, to, to go to a partner meeting. And, and this is why the lateral sort of hiring frenzy that's been underway the last uh, several years is, is, I think, so problematic. It's hard to go to a partner meeting, look around the room, and not recognize, you know, more than half the people in the room because they weren't there, you know, two years ago or three years ago. And the other, but what, you know, what's ultimately going to drive this is, uh, I think, are two things. One is clients, because clients are looking at this, and they're, I think, realizing that there is value in institution, institutional stability. You know, whenever somebody leaves a firm because it implodes or because they're going to they're going to go somewhere else they're always assuring the client you know you're not it's not going to cost you anything we're going to have a smooth transition everything's going to go great and that's to, to some extent you know you can accomplish that you do write-offs and learning curves and all that sort of stuff but anybody who thinks there isn't a disruption when a lawyer and his client leaves for someplace else um, isn't really looking realistically at the entirety of the picture and the, the nature of the change. But the other thing that I think that's really going to drive this, and this comes through pretty clearly to me and the undergraduates and the law students I'm teaching now, is there's a next generation of really good talent, top talent, that's going to that's looking at that's taking a hard look at a lot of this, and it's not just the legal profession; it's a short-termism that's pervasive throughout our society, um, a preoccupation with, you know, this year's. Uh, this t today's stock price, uh, you know, this year's earnings, the right. today's banking, whatever, it is. and they're saying, you know, this doesn't seem to be working all that well for people. Because um, look at the look at the dissatisfaction rates. Look at le the lawyers as a profession. You know, the, one of the recent surveys of the ABA Journal uh, found that six out of ten lawyers who've been practicing ten years or more counsel young people not to go to law school. Just don't do it. Well, that's that's to me that's sad because I think yeah. the law still is a noble and great career. So um, I, you know it's it's very tough. I think a lot of these places kind of have become are what they are, and I think it's going to be pretty difficult, other than an incremental basis going forward to 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 re recreate or try to create in the first instance the kinds of cultural things that bind people together. Doesn't mean people shouldn't try. I just think it's pretty hard because I think they, they, uh, many of these managing partners live in a world where they're fearful that if uh, this year's profits go down 10 or 15 percent from last year's, they're going to start losing people. They'll start losing all these rainmakers that they were so proud to bring in, a, a, you know, a, maybe a few, a, few, a few years or a few months earlier. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time and your expertise and sharing your knowledge with us on the podcast today. Let me ask you this. If someone wanted to reach you, what, what sort of business offerings do you have that can help law firm leaders and even attorneys uh, in, in really improving their, uh, their performance or their law firm uh, survivability uh, and growth? Uh, well, the, the, the uh, business offerings is sort of an interesting concept. I never really thought about it in those terms. But then again, I'm a lawyer. You're a business guy. So I suppose that makes sense. Um, uh, probably the only thing I can say is that I have been, I, I, as I say, I've been making appearances. I, I make a lot of appearances. Um, and people can contact me through my author website uh, to do that. Um, it's probably the simplest way to do it, which is uh, uh, www. Uh, stephenjharper.com and Stephen with a V. Um, you can also go, I also have the, my blog, which is the belly of the beast that becomes the basis for my American lawyer uh, columns weekly. 
um, that's just uh, thelawyerbubble.com. And there's a there's a link there so you can contact me and, and send me a message. And, you know, I, I do more of these than I turn down. So because uh, one of my, you know, I'm not going to change the world. And, and in a sense, I'm not really out to change the world. I have no expectation that that's going to happen. Um, but I don't mind illuminating it a little bit once in a while for people who sometimes don't have a good sense of its dark corners. And it's very hard when you're inside the profession to, per to perceive the swirl around you. So I think sometimes maybe you know, people bring me in to just talk about, look, here's the way things are. Here's how the situation has evolved. But guess what? It doesn't have to be. It, it just doesn't have to be like this. That's great, Stephen. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And we'll talk with you again on one of our next issues here later on, maybe in a, maybe in a couple of months or so. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Attorney Search Group. We grow law firms and accelerate the careers of partner-level attorneys. Visit us on the web at attorneysearchgroup.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.